Amen. Amen. Yeah, if you do have a Bible, please turn with me to today's passage, Hebrews chapter 4, starting at verse 1. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the good news proclaimed to us, just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them, because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. Now we who have believed enter that rest, just as God has said. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And yet his works have been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words. On the seventh day, God rested from all his works. And again, in the passage above, he says, they shall never enter my rest. Therefore, since it still remains for some to enter that rest, and since those who formerly had the good news proclaimed to them did not go in because of their disobedience, God again set a certain day, calling it today. This he did when a long time later he spoke through David, as in the passage already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest, so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Amen. This is God's word. Thank you, Matt. Do keep that passage of scripture open. This evening, I have good news for stressed people. I have good news for people with deadlines looming. I have good news for people who are panicking about everything there is left to do before they can go on holiday. I have good news for people who could do with a bit more sleep. I have good news for people whose to-do list is getting bigger every day instead of smaller. And I have good news for people who are stressed about their relationship with God. I have good news for people who feel lost and afraid. I have good news for people who are unsure and uncertain. I have good news for people who feel overwhelmed and don't know what to believe about this world and our place in it. I have good news for stressed people. Now, the bad news is that I'm not going to do your packing for you, sorry. And there's more bad news, not really bad news, but something to be aware of. The passage before us, as you might have noticed as Matt read it, is is not an easy one. It's quite complicated. It's very tightly argued. There's lots of Old Testament allusions and cross-references. We're going to have to work hard tonight and think deeply. But if we do, if we get what Hebrews 4 is saying, I promise you this is good news for stressed people. 
Because what we're going to see from Hebrews 4 today is that rest is available. True rest, God's rest, rest that starts today and lasts forever. So on the last night, are you ready? Are you up for a bit of hard work and to hear from God's word? Okay, good. Someone is. Let's start with our first point that rest has been promised. Let's start by setting the scene. Last night in chapter 3, we were looking at perhaps the darkest chapter in Israel's history, when almost an entire generation, the very generation that was brought out of slavery in Egypt, died in the desert outside the promised land. This was a generation who had seen the mighty works of God, who were led by Moses, that faithful servant in God's house, but their hearts were full of pride and fear and the desire for comfort. And that meant they refused to believe that God could lead them to safety. And so they wandered in the desert and they grumbled and they complained until they died under the curse of God. And as we saw last night, their experience, though different in many ways to ours, stands as a warning to us who have professed faith in Jesus. Jesus is our faithful high priest who has made a perfect sacrifice for sin. He is our faithful apostle who reveals God perfectly. And so through the suffering and persecution and temptation of life here and now, clinging to Jesus, belonging to his family, being in his house is the safest place in the universe. It means being united to Jesus so that that heavenly call can be ours, that we can be at home with God's. But rejecting him, being outside of his house, is to put ourselves in grave danger. And so the author starts chapter four with the repeat of the warning to make sure that we are actually in Jesus' house. Look at verse one with me. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. Now, our translation has slightly softened the blow here. The word translated, be careful, is more literally, be afraid. The imagery that we've just had in chapter 3 of corpses lying in the desert, dying under the curse of God, ought to frighten us just a little bit. It ought to cause us to seriously and carefully think about our position before God's. You see, it's possible that there are some here this evening who don't claim to be Christian. If that's you, do listen carefully as this warning extends to you too. But remember that this letter was actually written to a church, to a gathering of Christian people. And the author fears that there might be some gathering with them who are not Christian, but who are deluding themselves who think that because they are socially united to a church, that means they must be spiritually united to Jesus. But the author's point here is that association with Christians is not the same as union with Christ. He says that in verse 2. For we also have had the good news proclaimed to us just as they did, but the message they heard was of no value to them because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. You see, there were faithful people in that wilderness generation. There were some who heard the promise of God that he would bring them into the promised land and believed it. There was a faithful group of Israelites. But there were others in that generation who walked alongside that faithful group, who saw what they saw, who experienced what they experienced, and who heard what they heard, but they didn't believe it. It wasn't safe 
to be merely associated with true believers, to eat and drink and sing and walk with them. They needed to be united with them by sharing the same faith, by trusting the same promise. The author's point is that simply being members of the same generation as true believers does not mean you automatically share their faith. Simply being members of the same family as true believers does not automatically make you a true believer. Simply being friends with Christians doesn't make you one. And sharing in the same social structures without, the share, without sharing the same faith is a very dangerous place to find yourself. Look at verse 3. Now we who have believed enter that rest. It is faith in Jesus, trust in his promises, that is the condition to enter God's rest. Not a condition in that faith is the work we have to do to impress God. Faith doesn't earn anything or achieve anything that can be credited to our account. It's total dependence and reliance on Jesus and what he has done. But without that dependence, without that reliance, without that faith, our lives amount to a rejection of Jesus. And it doesn't matter how closely we align ourselves with Christian people. If that's us, we face God's wrath. Only Jesus' sacrifice can take it away. Reject that and there's no other hope of avoiding it. Now, I said at the beginning that this was good news, this passage, didn't I? It hasn't sounded like it so far. But if you are worried, if you are afraid that this might be you, look again at verse 1. The promise of entering God's rest still stands. The failure of that one generation was not the end of the story. It didn't permanently ruin God's plans. The rest, which you'll notice we haven't really defined yet, we'll we'll get there, don't worry. The rest is still available to enter. The promise somehow still stands. How can that be true when it was promised and rejected by Israel? Well, to answer that question, the author is going to give us a brief overview in about eight verses of the entire Bible. We're going to have to work hard on this, but it's going to be worth it. Let's start with rest offered and lost. Look at verse three again. Now we who have believed enter that rest, just as God has said, so I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And yet his works have been finished since the creation of the world. What is that all about? Well, we get a little bit closer in those verses to understanding what rest is. It has to do with creation. The rest is God's rest because he has finished the work of creation. The author reminds us that in Genesis 2, God finished his work in six days, and on the seventh day, he rested. The work is done, and God looks back on it with satisfaction. It is very good, and so he rests. There's no more to be done. I wonder if you've ever experienced that. The joy of finishing a job, dotting all the I's, crossing all the T's, and sitting back to enjoy your handiwork. I'll be honest, it doesn't happen to me very often. If you were to come to our house, and you're all welcome anytime, day or night, just rock up, you would notice unfinished jobs in every single room. In our bathroom, there is one tiny square of wall which is unpainted. There is no excuse for that. The painting is downstairs. I could do it any time. I just haven't got around to it. And so every time I go in there, there is that little pang of guilt. Ah, oh, I should have finished that. And a tiny sense of restlessness that I can't fully enjoy the room because it isn't quite finished yet. You ever experienced something like that? It isn't quite finished. There's a couple of things left undone. 
God is not like me and you. Praise God for that. There are no loose screws or unvarnished surfaces in God's creation like there are in my house. When God starts something, he finishes it, and then he can rest and look back on a job well done. And that's what he does on the seventh day. And as you'll remember from Genesis 2, the seventh day is different from all the other six days of creation. The other six days all end with the same refrain, and it was evening, and it was morning, the fourth day, but not the seventh day. On the seventh day, God rests, and there is no eighth day. He doesn't put his feet up for 10 minutes and then gets back to work, no. Instead, the seventh day stands for all time as an invitation, an invitation for God's creatures to join him in his rest, to join him in relationship, to enjoy peace and harmony with him, free from anxiety or the need to impress him, free to enjoy the creation alongside him, free to rest with him and look at the world and say, yes, you are right. This is very good. You are a good God. This is a blessed world and I'm so glad you created me to have relationship with you. That was what the seventh day in Genesis 2 was all about. And that was what the Sabbath law in Israel was trying to capture. A time to rest. To enjoy the fact that God had made a good world which he was in charge of and not us. So that we can take a day off without panicking that the world would fall to bits. The Israelites could rest Because God was at rest. He wasn't stressed or panicked or overworked. He's resting. And so we can too. And yet, we're tired, aren't we? We're stressed. We're anxious. We can't wait for a break. Work is never finished. There's always something more to do. We never seem to get time to relax and enjoy a job well done. Things get keep breaking. Our bodies let us down and work is so hard that we never quite finish anything to our satisfaction. And even when we finish, even when we retire, life continues to be a struggle. And after a few short years, we die. Sorry. (laughs) That's your life in summary. Let's be real. What happened? What happened to the offer of rest? Well, if you know your Bible, if you're with us with Ivor's sessions in the mornings, you'll know what happened. The offer of rest was rejected. Genesis 2 is followed by Genesis 3, where Adam and Eve disobeyed, refused to believe that God was able and willing to give them what they needed, and fell under God's curse. And in that curse, work becomes toil, peace becomes war, and rest becomes restlessness. Do you remember Cain, after he killed his brother Abel, being told that because of his sin, he would be a restless wanderer on the earth? And all of us, because we repeat the sin of Adam and Eve, because we reject God and refuse to believe him, all of us know that restlessness too, don't we? And so this is the tragedy of that generation in the wilderness. They repeated the sin and the stupidity of Adam and Eve. They refused to believe that God could do what he said he would do, that he could bring them into the promised land. They disobeyed. They fell under God's curse. They did not enter God's rest. But as the passage goes on, the author says something even more scandalous and even more striking. He's talked about the generation that died in the wilderness and said, well, they didn't enter God's rest, clearly. But what about the generation that did enter the land? Here's the shock of this passage. The author says they didn't get it either. The promised land was not the final rest 
which God had promised. Instead, it was rest pictured. Have a look with me at verse 6. Therefore, since it still remains for some to enter that rest, and since those who formerly had the good news proclaimed to them did not go in because of their disobedience, God again set a certain day, calling it today. This he did when a long time later he spoke through David, as in the passage already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. The author moves from talking about Moses and the wilderness generation to talking about Joshua, to that next generation of people who did enter the promised land, led by Moses' servant Joshua. And here is the Bible's summary of what happened. The Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he'd sworn to their ancestors. Not one of their enemies withstood them. The Lord gave all their enemies into their hands. Not one of all the Lord's good promises to Israel failed. Everyone was fulfilled. That's Joshua 21. Joshua gave the people rest. They were able to enjoy the physical land of Israel free from enemies, to enjoy the land flowing with milk and honey, a land of peace and plenty, at least for a while. But have a look at chapter 4, verse 8 of Hebrews where it strongly implies that Joshua didn't give the people rest. What's going on there? Is there a contradiction in our Bibles? Well, no. Good. There are no contradictions in God's word. God wrote it and he doesn't get things wrong. Joshua did give them rest of one kind. They had physical rest, freedom from enemies... But even at the time, even after they'd become even more established in the land, when there was a kingdom, when they had settled, even then, David wrote Psalm 95. David could write to a bunch of people actually living in the land, hundreds of years after that wilderness generation, uh, people with no immediate threat to their physical safety, he could say to them, guys, don't miss out on God's rest. Don't harden your hearts. Don't disobey. Don't disbelieve. The promise of rest is still to come. We haven't got it yet. We haven't got it in its full fulfillment. See, we love going on um, long walks as a family. We often take a picnic or a biscuit or a flask of tea or something. And it's lovely, isn't it, to stop halfway around a big loop and crack open our snacks and sit by the side of the trail for a bit. But if you're a parent with young children, you know that is a very dangerous thing to do. It is dangerous because once the kids have sat down, it's very hard to get them going again. You know the whinge, but we've just stopped. Can't we just stay here? That's my kids, aren't we? And the answer is no. No, you can't stay here because we're not home yet. This is just a little pit stop. The real end of the journey is a long way away yet. That's what David understood about life in the land of Canaan. David understood that the promise of God's rest is a creation promise. It's much bigger than the establishment of one people in one land. Good though that was, that's just a pit stop, a picture of the rest to come at the end of the journey. God's rest was about all of mankind coming to enjoy the whole of God's world in right unbroken relationship with God forever. And so David living in the land with so many promises fulfilled, knows that he needs to keep calling the people to trust in God today. 
They may have a partial version of the rest that God ultimately offers, but the promise isn't fulfilled just yet. And that's because at that point in Israel's history, God's rescue had not been finished yet. That might be a surprise. Remember that God had rescued his people from slavery to Egypt in the Exodus. He brought them through the desert, all that sin and grumbling and wandering and whining and hunger and thirst to the promised land. And he gave them a good king and he defeated all their enemies and he established their borders. You might think, what else is there? Well, sadly, Israel's subsequent history gives us their answer. The people who had rest still persisted in the hard-heartedness and stubbornness that characterized that earlier wilderness generation. They They were the same people. They continued to reject God. They continued to ignore him like we all do. And so they did not enjoy that creation, seventh-day Sabbath rest, that communion with God, which meant unbroken access to him and the flow of blessing from him. Instead, their fellowship with God was always at arm's length, always temporary, always provisional, until the inevitable happened and they were sent into exile far from the land under God's judgment. The rest was pictured in Canaan, but it was never fully achieved in Israel. And so that brings us to rest offered and won. I promise you good news. Here it is, verse 9. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. The promise still stands. Creation will be restored. God's people will enjoy full and unbroken communion with God forever. There will come an end to the curse, to the toil and the pain and the frustration and the stress. The seventh day has not yet ended and the offer of rest still stands. But how? How can God keep holding out this promise of rest to people who continually refuse it and reject it and rebel against him? Well, the answer is in verse 10, I think. Verse 10, for anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Now, I said this would be tricky, and this is the trickiest bit. So let's work hard and bear with us. What does this mean? This verse has had a long history of interpretation. There's been lots of debate over it. There's basically three ways we can read it. Some people have thought that this is talking about how when we trust in Jesus, we rest from the work of trying to please God. We move from trying to justify ourselves to simply resting in what God has done. Well, that is a beautiful gospel truth, isn't it? And it could mean that. Other people have thought that this is talking about the future when God's people will finally end their struggles and their sufferings and their persecutions. And of course, that's gloriously true too. In fact, it's in Revelation 14, 13, says something very similar and it definitely means that there and it could mean that here too. But the difficulty with both of those is the second half of the verse. It says, whoever enters God's rest, rests from his work just as God did from his. This rest from work is somehow analogous to what God has done. The one who enters God's rest rests in the same way God rests. And so personally, I don't think that either of those first two interpretations really makes full sense. Has God rested from trying to justify himself? No, that doesn't make any sense. Has God rested from suffering and persecution and toil? 
No, his work of creation wasn't toil, it was delightful, it was good. So what does verse 10 mean? Well, there is another way of reading this verse. It's not a common one, but before you think I'm insane, John Owen agrees with me. So if, if it's wrong, it's not bonkers, okay? See what you think of this. It's helpful to know that the word translated anyone at the beginning of verse 10 can be taken another way. It could mean anyone referring to a group, but it could equally be referring to a single person. In fact, here's another version uh, of uh, how another version translates the verse on the screen. For the person who has entered his rest has rested from his own works, just as God did from his. The person, the one, the man who has entered God's rest has rested. If that reading of the verse is right, we are looking for one person, one man, who has rested from their works, just as God has rested from his work of creation. Who's done that? Look back with me to chapter 1, verse 3. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. You see, the first Joshua, for all his brilliant leadership, could not give the people the rest they needed. Joshua actually didn't fully finish the work God gave him to do. But the second Joshua, the Greek name Jesus, is exactly the same as the Hebrew name Joshua. The second Joshua, Jesus, has sat down. He is at rest. Just as God finished his work of creation, so Jesus, the God-man, has finished his work of salvation. He has made purification for sins. He has completed God's rescue. Not just rescue from slavery to Pharaoh, but rescue from slavery to sin. In fact, I'll give you a sneak preview of how the rest of Hebrews proves this to us. Look at these verses from later in Hebrews, Hebrews 10. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. In verse 11, you can see that toil, can't you, of the priests making animal sacrifices in the temple. Day after day, they stand there, making those sacrifices, never finished. The work is never done because the sin is never really dealt with. The sin keeps coming, and so there can be no rest for the priests of the old covenant. But verse 12 of Hebrews 10, Jesus has sat down. He made one sacrifice And then he put his feet up. He is at rest. Remember what his last words on the cross? It's finished. It is done. And because Jesus, the true human being, the true man, the true Adam, because he is now at rest with God, he can offer that same rest to all who are united to him by faith. The reason a Sabbath rest remains for the people of God The reason God can continue to offer unbroken, eternal communion to sinners like you and me is because Jesus has finished his work of salvation just as God has finished his work of creation. Once Jesus finished his final week of work, once he was raised on the Sunday, he didn't start again on Monday morning. There is no eighth day. There is nothing more to be done. And so as this section concludes, as our conference concludes... 
the author goes back to the point at the beginning and reminds us of the importance of entering God's rest. Look at verse 11. Let us, therefore, make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. We mustn't get confused here with the idea of effort. The point is not that entering God's rest is a matter of us working really hard and earning our way back into his good books. That would be literally the opposite of everything he's said so far. Rather, the idea here is of urgency. We must make haste to enter God's rest. Did you notice the language back in verse 7 of God setting a day, appointing a day called today when the word of the gospel is going out? The promise has been made, forgiveness and restored relationship is available. The word of God is now going out, bringing people to trust in Jesus. It's doing God's work of keeping people going as the Holy Spirit speaks through it. As Christians, like we saw last night, encourage each other to keep on going. Today is the day God has appointed for us to listen to God's words. But this day won't last forever. The seventh day does last forever. The eternal Sabbath rest stretches infinitely into the future. But this day, today, well, that's going to come to an end. And that's the point of verse 12 and 13, where he says, The word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Now, today, God's word brings promise and grace and forgiveness. But it also brings judgment on those who are not trusting in Jesus. As we read and hear the word of God in the Bible, we bring our lives in front of a piercing spotlight. The word, like a sword, penetrates the deepest parts of who we are. It doesn't allow us to hide. We cannot pretend to be right with God for long when confronted with God's word. It leaves no room for faking it. As God speaks by his living and active word today, it leaves us, verse 13, uncovered, naked, vulnerable. See, there are all sorts of ways we can pretend that we're in the right with God. We can talk in Christian jargon. We can involve ourselves in Christian activity. We can strive for self-improvement so we match up with Christian morality and we can associate ourselves with Christian people. We can be born in a Christian family we can come to a Christian conference. But ultimately, none of that means anything if we don't actually believe in Jesus. If we don't agree with him that we are sinners, that we're rebels, that we've fallen short of God's glory. If we don't agree with him that he's the only one who can rescue us and bring us back to relationship with God. If we don't actually trust in Jesus, we'll be like that wilderness generation who were merely associated with the faithful people of God and whose bodies fell in the desert. And so now the same warning stands. Make sure that you are right with God now. Make sure you are trusting God's words today. Because if we try and enter God's rest by ourselves, if we try to make ourselves right with him, if we face our death still trusting in our own efforts, then we too will fall by the word of God's judgment. But if we trust him now, today, 
If we would only listen to the word and let it strip away all our pretensions and masks. If we would only cry out to God that we are sinners who need rescue and can offer nothing in return, then we will follow Jesus, follow our king, follow our Joshua, follow our older brother into his rest. I said at the beginning that this evening's passage was good news for stressed people. But if you are tired and weary and overworked, and you can't seem to get anything done, here is the good news. God finishes the job. He has finished the work of creation. He has finished the work of salvation. In Christ, he has made full and final purification for sin. He has made it possible for all people to be at rest with him to enjoy that peaceful, harmonious, unbroken communion with him, which begins now and will last for all eternity. In Christ, he has begun that new creation, which we one day can all look forward to. A life free of frustration and pain and stress and anxiety. A life free of unfinished jobs and unfulfilled plans. He can set you free now from the need to earn your right standing with him or impress him or try to make your way into his good books. Now there, by the way, is a recipe for life which leads to stress and restlessness and anxiety. But Jesus has sat down at the right hand of the Father. It is finished. Jesus is at rest. And so if you are trusting in him, you too can rest in your restored relationship with him. God finishes the job. He will not leave his creation under a curse forever. He will restore the seventh day. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Right now, we live in in between two worlds, don't we? We live in a world which has been spoiled, condemned to be restless, condemned to toil and labor and struggle. But Jesus has come and he has entered God's rest and he has taken us with him. And one day soon he will return. And what David was looking forward to will happen. The whole creation reordered, restored, at rest with God. That little glimpse that was seen in Israel will look like nothing compared to the eternal joy and wholeness and harmony and peace that will belong to those who trust in Jesus. Might not happen in our lifetime, might happen tomorrow morning, but it will happen There is an end in sight. There is light at the end of the tunnel. There is hope. And so today, the promise of entering God's rest still stands. What was it Jesus said? Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for addressing us today. Thank you for the gracious warning of the danger of turning away from you, of not trusting in Jesus. And thank you for the wonderful promise that the Sabbath rest still stands, that the offer of unbroken, harmonious, peaceful communion with you, which lasts forever, has been made and finished decisively in Jesus. And I pray for anybody here who has not yet entered that rest, please would they do it today. Please would they come and trust in Jesus. And for all of us, 
whether we are going strong in our faith or wobbling and doubting, please keep us trusting in Jesus to the very end so that we may enter that rest. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.